Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity here with you again. Look, I don't think anybody's really ready for what's coming, particularly Europe, and Europe is gonna be instructive in terms of how your future is gonna unfold. Wherever you live, Europe's just going first. So let's talk about that, and um, if it seems like things are speeding up, of course they are speeding up because we live in an exponentially changing world. Hey, it's great when technology changes exponentially for the better, but things aren't so good when we are exponentially seeing debt accumulate, money supply changes, loss of insects. We're surrounded by a world that's very hard to keep on top of, which is why I do what I do. I frame things, make it simple, spend the time so that you don't have to trying to figure out what's going on in the world. Now we have to talk about this because I don't think anybody's really ready for what's coming. And hey, maybe I'm not ready, okay? But to be ready, you have to have the context, you have to know what's going on out there so that you can begin to make decisions and take effective actions. So let's talk about what's going on. Right now we're getting reports in, and I don't know how much I trust these because these are reports that are, quote, according to Kiev's military officials, hey, they've been hyperbolic a lot in the past, and of course they are, they're trying to drum up more support, more weaponry, more money, things like that, but, even if we discount what they're saying by 50%, this is a big deal because they're talking about a half a million new soldiers from Russia massed at the border and 1,800 tanks, 3,950 armored vehicles, 2,700 artillery systems, rocket launchers, jets, helicopters, the whole nine yards. So this would be consistent with a very large campaign, a larger invasion coming across the border. And so if is this true? Who knows? What I do know is that the escalations are very real. The United States has been providing targeting official for the HIMARS rockets, and who knows how Russia's eventually gonna respond to that, but if they decided that that targeting information is coming from satellites, that could really escalate the escalations if Russia responds to that. But at any rate, it's very difficult now to maintain the posture that the United States is in a proxy war where Ukraine's doing the fighting, but maybe we support them with a little, you know, a few extra bullets, maybe some dollars. Mm -mm. What we're seeing here is uh, this is U.S. military personnel providing targeting information. So they're doing everything except having the missile at their fingertips pressing the button. Or maybe they're doing that. Who knows? As well, we have this other report right here which says that losses in Ukraine are out of proportion to what NATO has been planning for, the alliance's top general says. So uh, there have actually been massive, massive amounts of losses in Ukraine, not just of equipment, but of personnel. And we're now seeing the open conscription of men and sometimes what I would call boys on the street. This is a sign of, well, where we are in this particular part of the story right now. And it's not looking good. So these escalations have the chance to actually create a worse situation militarily, but for sure, they've already created massive damage. And that's in the form of the loss of Russian energy supplies to Europe. Now. Hey, I happen to think it's a very bad idea to be poking a nuclear superpower because things, who knows what happens in war, right? So my position, bad idea. Come to the bargaining table, let's talk about it. If that's not on the table, then just stop what you're doing. None of that's happening. So right now there's poke, 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 escalations and things like that, who knows where this leads. But I can tell you that for sure, Russia now has almost no incentive to come back to the energy bargaining table this leaves Europe in a really bad spot. And so let's talk about this and why that is. Here we have Boris Johnson or Bojo uh, here saying even, talk about an escalation, former prime minister urging the UK to offer all its fighter jets and tanks to Ukraine. 
The XPM says, best use for military kit is battling Russia after Zelensky issues plea in emotional speech to MPs and peers. Um, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> what could go wrong? Sending all your hardware uh, to be destroyed in a theater of war. And obviously they say here it could take years to train pilots. It takes a long time to train people on any new platform. And so you would send these things in if you were the UK, mostly to get destroyed by Russia's uh, trained outfit there. Um, and as well, so hey, when I said energy is, you know, th the master resource, Russia is, of course, now got the upper hand in the story because, hey, Russia's an energy giant. It is a nuclear superpower, but more than that, it's an energy superpower, oil, natural gas, and it's been shipping those reliably to Europe for years and decades. And now it said, yet to that, it stopped. So now they're going to be cutting March oil production by 500,000 barrels a day. Bad time for this on the world stage, because if you look at where we really are in terms of oil output, when Russia makes a cut like this, it's not one of these things where they can just dial off a field and then dial it back on again at some point in the future. When you dial down a field, it could take years to get it back to where it was. These things are slow processes. So right now, the world is not exactly swimming in oil. This makes it a little bit more difficult as we go forward. So as goes the price of oil, or more importantly, the supply of oil, with price being a derivative of supply, as goes the supply of oil, so goes the world economy. So, hey, that's where we are. Now, if you really want to understand that better, the crash course, I'm going to make a small plea here. This is my latest book. It's uh, shipping on you know, February 1st, I believe. Um, at any rate, you can pre-order it, and we're this close to getting on a bestseller list. I want to get on the bestseller list because, well, ego, but more importantly, people will hear about it then. And I think this book and the messages in the crash course, everybody needs to know about them because it puts economy, energy, environment into one spot in the way that I know how to do it best. And so if, um, when people get that message, then they think they have a better chance of knowing what's going on. So if you want to know what's going on, give it a pre-order. I would love your help. Thank you. All right. Now, we got this big report out from Cy Hirsch, who came out and said, after doing his usual investigative reporting, and said that, well, the United States was behind the explosive destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines. Both strands of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, one strand of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, gone. And Russia then blamed the U.S. for explosions, of course, not because only of the article that Cy Hirsch put out, but because they'd been saying that all along, because... Well, that's actually probably the most likely assumption that NATO somehow was involved in this. And Russia said down there, quote, our assumption was that the U.S. and several NATO allies were involved in this disgusting crime. I think it is a disgusting crime. Whoever did it, it's a very bad idea to begin targeting undersea economic installations, because that could include communications cables, power cables, gas pipelines, oil pipelines, a lot of things down there that are very difficult to defend. And if those suddenly became open season, we would see huge disruptions to our way of life. So that was a Rubicon that's now crossed. Bad idea, very bad idea. Um, so what happens though, now that those, those gas pipelines are down, Germany is basically receiving no gas from Russia at this point in time. And so what's happened is even though the price of gas in Europe has moderated quite a bit in the last few months, it doesn't matter when you're a planner for a corporation, Here's what happens is, um, headline, German energy reprieve, that's a price reprieve, too little, too late to save factory jobs 
Well, with gas prices down from record highs, Germany has seen a surge of optimism that the worst of the energy crisis has passed. That's actually, that's um, misplaced optimism. I'll show you why in just a second. But for the country's biggest industrial producers, the long-term picture remains dismal. Companies, including BASF, which is, by the way, the heart and soul, not just of Germany, but I would argue all of Europe. Dow, Lanxis are poised to cut thousands of jobs and shift investment out of Germany because they don't expect Berlin to reliably provide the energy they need at prices close to what they once paid for Russian pipeline gas. So we have to talk about this because energy is everything. And more specifically, cheap energy is everything, with cheap being a proxy for high net energy supplies, right? If your gas is super expensive, your oil is super expensive, and you have almost no surplus energy or net energy in that story, I don't care how efficient your industrial processes are, you will not produce prosperity. So can we be clear about this, please? Prosperity, it comes from real people taking raw goods and putting value-add services and um, activities on top of that. Every step of that requires energy. If we want an electric car, we're going down the electric car path, somebody somewhere has to get these massive machines to dig up the earth, to get us the cobalt, the nickel, the lithium, all those things and process it, ship it so it can be manufactured. Energy, 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 but let me be more clear. Diesel oil, diesel fuel, diesel, diesel, diesel. Every step of this process requires energy. If you're a manufacturing concern, and you're on a global competitive marketplace and you have to, let's say you're taking nitrogen out of the atmosphere, Haber-Bosch process, and you're gonna make ammonium-based fertilizer. You are now gonna be selling that. A farmer somewhere in Holland has a choice. Am I buying the really expensive stuff from the German manufacturer or am I buying the cheaper stuff from the American manufacturer? That's just an economic decision. It's impossible to have a prosperous nation when your energy supplies and costs are fundamentally different from those of the people you're trying to compete with. So that's the story. And um, they say here, Lanxus's chief executive officer, Matthias Zeckert, says we are no longer competitive in Germany. Whoops. Um, and so they say they're a chemical maker. They say, but our investments to grow further will go to more competitive locations like the United States. This is the deindustrialization of Europe. And by the way, industry is your source of prosperity. Lots of things can feast on the edge of that, but it's those productive factory jobs and it's the productivity, the value add that happens when factories take raw ore and turn it into finished Mercedes Benzes or whatever they're doing. That's actually where prosperity comes from. Now, a lot of our leaders have lost that plot line. They didn't, they didn't grow up making stuff. They don't know what it is, but let me tell you, that level of leadership in Europe does not get the basic physics behind how important it is to have cheap energy. But this story, when we extract ourselves one step back, this is a story that's happening all over the world and it's about to continue to happen all over the world and this is gonna dominate the future again, which is why I put the crash course together. If you understand energy in the economy, you're gonna look like a genius to everybody because you now have predictive and explanatory power Oops, for what you're seeing out in the world. Quote, but Germany hasn't received direct Russian gas imports since September, a dramatic shift considering Moscow accounted for more than half of German gas imports before the invasion of Ukraine. And with virtually no prospect of those imports resuming, the outlook for chemical glass building material companies 
remains bleak. Um, so that is the nature of the situation. But that's okay. The German Chancellor Scholz says, uh, I do not join the chorus of those prophesying a deep recession in Europe's deindustrialization. Um, yeah, uh, hey, Schultz, uh, you might want to check out articles like this because that deindustrialization is already happening, right? And it's a very predictable thing that's going to happen. All right. Um, so at any rate, it comes back now to that whole idea of the, the, that attack on the Nord Stream pipelines was really a big deal, a really big deal. It's gone down the memory hole in the West, in the Western press. They sort of were confused at first, then tried to sort of vaguely blame Russia for blowing up their own infrastructure. And that's fallen apart a lot now, particularly since Seymour Hirsch or Cy Hirsch has come out with, again, another blockbuster article, which is again being mostly ignored in the Western press. So just so you know, I consider him, uh, Cy Hirsch, to be one of the most, he is the most trusted investigative journalist of my lifetime. Let's see, what did he do here? He wrote for The New Yorker in 1971, been a regular contributor to the magazine since 93. Uh, let's see, his prizes, journalism and publishing prizes, include the Pulitzer, four George Polk Awards, hmm, the National Magazine Award, and more than a dozen other prizes do, 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 for investigative reporting on My Lie, the CIA's bombing of Cambodia. You remember that little thing? Um, Henry Kissinger's wiretapping, CIA's efforts against Chile's Salvador Allende, and most recently the Abu Ghraib prison story. Everything he's broken has proven to be true, but uh, he's definitely a truth to power kind of guy. These days, truth to power is not really well respected within the media itself. So of course, he's not really doing this for a major media outlet because the New York Times, Reuters, AP, none of them would touch investigative reporting like this with a 10-foot pole because that's not who they are anymore. They are now mouthpieces and spin conveyors for the power structure. They are not truth to power investigative journalists. They are stenographers for power. Big difference. So it means that Cy Hirsch did uh, put this up on a, a blog. Um, and so, uh, you know, he did. But look how... Reuters. Reuters is where I go now for 100% of my disinformation and government spin needs. If I ever want to know what, what's uh, being misreported, misquoted, and misattributed, I start with Reuters. It's a good place. That's where I go first. So uh, here they say, look at this, Reuters writes, uh, White House says blog post on Nord Stream blog post on Nord Stream explosion. Utterly false. Uh, the White House on Wednesday dismissed a blog post. They make sure they got it in the headline and the first sentence just to reinforce that because, of course, when you're doing spin, that's what you want to do. You want to get the main point out and then reinforce it. Oh, you're not going to believe a blog post, are you? Sometimes those are put up by 13-year-old kids. Sometimes you don't know who they are. They're anonymous. And then you got Cy Hirsch. Just blog post. A category, if you will. At any rate, um... They say here, Reuters has not corroborated the report. Because yes, of course, Reuters. That would be called doing your job. That would be called journalism, which we know you have no relationship to anymore. So we get it. That, that's fine. Um, and so uh, they said here, they repeated, this is utterly false and complete fiction, says Adrian Watson, a name we will remember here uh, at Peak Prosperity in my brain, because uh, I bet Adrian's going to show up uh, saying... Um, lies over and over again throughout whatever career Adrian has. Uh, right, so she is a spokesperson for the White House National Security Council and spokespeople for the CIA 
and the State Department all said the same thing. So it's been denied three times. Remember, it's not official till it's been denied by the government. This is triple official. Good stuff, right? So at any rate, uh, but at any rate, to call Cy Hirsch a blogger is, is kind of like calling this thing a Cessna. You know what I'm saying, right? It's it's like uh, it, like to call Cy Hirsch a blogger is really such a um, mischaracter. It's so grotesquely ungrounded in the in the in the entire career arc of that gentleman that it's just I don't even know what. I don't even know what, what, what Reuters is up to, except really cheesy 101 level propaganda and spin. It's gross. I mean, once you see it, it's very hard to unsee it. So, um, yeah, sorry, Reuters, you're out. By the way, I will never, ever, ever, ever give money to Wikipedia, ever, because they, within seconds of that ar- a blog post by Cy Hirsch coming out, they appended that part in yellow there, which say he's an American investigative journalist, he's a political writer, and conspiracy theorist. Hmm. Oh, Wiki, this is so lame. Now when you call somebody a conspiracy theorist, it's actually a badge of honor, but you also out yourself as being an illegitimate organization, just like literally stuck on propaganda techniques that are so 20 years ago, it's embarrassing. I mean, this is really embarrassing. Everybody who works at Wiki, this is embarrassing. But it also, as far as I'm concerned, removes you from Section 230, where you have that 230 Internet Act where you are allowed to escape liability because, hey, you're just a platform, but this puts you in the realm of publisher because you're publishing opinion. To append conspiracy theorists to Cy Hirsch's uh, moniker there and bio within minutes of that blog post coming out, I think 100% removes you from Section 230 liability exclusions, and that means the editors, whoever did this, I think is actually liable. Whichever, you know, they they can track, this is all tracked, right? But whichever so-called wiki editor put that on there, I think is liable. And I think there ought to be liabilities for, for these sorts of things, but just my opinion on that. At any rate, I will never, ever, ever give money to Wikipedia. You should not either. And the reason is because, well, I'm old school. I, I believe propaganda should be free. Yeah, you shouldn't pay for that, right? And be, be offensive if they charged you for that poster uh, saying, you know, war bonds are, are for the country or whatever, right? All right. Um, so, hey, sorry, you're, you're actually screwed in this story. So let's talk about this gas right now because gas is the primary fuel feedstock that they're talking about for the industrialization and now deindustrialization. The International Energy Agency, the IEA, has come out and said how to avoid gas shortages in the European Union in 2023. So let's see what they did. Good report. Let's see what they came up with. First up, over there in the yellow and in the and in the pink or red, whatever you see those two things, they say here their baseline demand, get my drawing tool out because you know how much I love that, the total demand here is going to be, say, almost 400 billion cubic meters, 395. They know how to get to this part, but they're, they got 57 billion cubic meters. They don't, they don't know where that's coming from. So here's some ideas, the expected changes. So 30 billion cubic meters comes from first trimming the fat. So they got some efficiency here, efficiency here, behaviors. So they're saying, you know what, we can just change a few things, get a little more efficient, maybe keep the change the behaviors, turn the, turn the heat down, uh, and we can make some savings there. And as well, you know, they're going to make up the difference by switching fuels away from gas to something else, maybe to electricity, hydro, nuclear, renewables, things like that. So that's what they're saying they're going to do to make up this big old shortfall right here. Now, 
if you just making up the shortfall is one thing, but that isn't the total story. It's how expensive that is. So let's talk about this. Part of the plan that they are going forward with is the deindustrialization. Here they're saying, well, you know, if we have to save this 20 some billion cubic meters in the second, fourth quarter of 2022, how are we doing that? Well, you can see they do this by improving efficiency in buildings. Uh, there's some power generation that they can switch away from gas. And then there's industry, this green thing. This is this is deindustrialization. These big green blocks here where they're having savings. Maybe some of that is industry being a little more efficient. But that all those big green blocks here, when you see something like five billion cubic meters of gas in a quarter that's not being used by industry, the next question is, what's not being produced? What prosperity is not being produced? Which people are losing their jobs? What things are about to become a lot more expensive because we have shortfalls? We've already seen 70% of the ammonia-based fertilizer production in Europe went poof. That's what's in that green bar that's below zero there. What about uh, silica or glass manufacturing? Same thing, poof. Aluminum, poof, right? The high energy intensive industries in Europe have already picked up, shut down or limited or curtailed their operations. And so that's what we see here. They're like, here's the year on year change. This is this is bad news. Seeing your industries suddenly rapidly have to consume a lot less is not a good look for prosperity or jobs or your economy. So I will take the other side of Olaf Scholz's uh, <laughs> rallying cry for his people. How about this, though? Uh, they're saying, well... Okay, if we need almost 400 billion cubic meters and we have the supply gap, but here's where stuff is coming from. So they're going to get this much from known LNG, this much still coming out of pipelines, this much from domestic production, but they still have this 57 billion cubic meter gap here. So where's that coming from? Talk about that in a second. But even this LNG right here, this is a lot more than it used to be. Europe scrambled a lot and they're importing a lot with LNG. Now, I don't care if you have the LNG available or not, LNG is more expensive than pipe gas and by a lot and for really clear, obvious reasons. They both have methane or methane, depending which continent you're from, but the methane in a natural gas pipe comes out of the ground, little conditioning, goes into a pipe and goes where it gets used. LNG, on the other hand, has to go through this ridiculous process that looks like this, where you get the feed gas out of a pipeline, comes in here, goes through an absorber, comes into here, goes gets water and mercury removal, gets scrubbed. Okay, we got it really clean. Then we go into this liquefaction machine here where we got to like just crush it, crush it, crush it. And you take a gas and you turn it into a liquid, which means you take about this much gas and you squeeze it down into a thing this big. That process takes a lot of energy. Imagine having a big beach ball in your hands and your job was to squeeze it until all the gas inside crushed down and became a liquid immense pressures. That pressure, that takes muscle energy if you're trying to do it with your hands or it takes a machine. So that energy that was in the feedstock gas gets used up. So by definition, LNG cannot be cost competitive with pipe gas because it's got a lot of energy that gets consumed in this entire process before it goes out to shipping. And then in shipping even, a lot of energy gets used up because this is a liquid that's at like minus 260 degrees Fahrenheit and it's got to stay that way. And no matter how well insulated your tanks are, it's going to be boiling off during shipping. So if you spend typically about a percent a day, so if it's a seven day ship, you're going to lose about 7% of the load. 
just to evaporation and using that evaporated gas to come back and help keep the rest of it cool. It's just, there's just losses. Um, so what, how would we look at that? We could say if there were this many units of energy here, whoop, by the time it comes over here, there's only this many units. So, you know, this many on the way in, this many when it finally gets there. Typically, you're going to lose about 10% or a little more in the liquefaction process here. And you're going to lose a little in shipping, as I just mentioned, in the boiling off process. So all told, it really depends on how long your shipping process is and whether you can just load it, ship it, get it to the regasification plant and offload it right away. If there's any waiting, like the ship's got to wait, um, it's just boiling off while you're sitting there. So you'll have more losses during this part. But let's say at a minimum, probably 15% is a reasonable guess for what you're going to lose just in energy. Okay. So no matter what, we've already lost some energy. We don't get to do anything with that energy as a species, as a society, as a continent. We don't get to build a bridge with it, smelt some glass, turn it into anything. It just is energy that's used so that we can move that energy from point A to point B. The easiest way to make use of natural gas is to put it in a pipeline from its source and then use it at its destination. Pipelines rule in this particular story. Um, and if you want, again, if you want to understand that better, this book will help you understand that connection between energy and the economy. It's one of the most important concepts that you could actually have at this particular moment in human evolution. This is like, a, this is going down on your watch. It's a big deal. All right. Here's why also it costs more because the people who built this, this is a LNG liquefaction plant. You see these big long trains here of equipment where they are just taking this natural gas gas and crushing it down and treating it and doing things so that they can make a liquid out of it, which is LNG. This thing right here, these things cost a lot. Like um, the Lake Charles plant cost 15 billion-ish and the Gorgon plant in Australia cost $54 billion. Why so much more? Because it's a lot larger. So these things just cost a lot of money. Obviously, when you make LNG, you price it so that you can get this capital back. So even if we're saying gas to LNG, we lose 15% of the base energy. It's not just 15% more expensive because we also have to pay for this giant monstrosity of a thing called an LNG plant. Plus, there are specialized ships. And on the other end, there's a specialized regasification facility. There's a lot of capital tied up in this. So no matter what, what no matter what, LNG is always going to be more expensive than piped gas. That's what Europe is attempting to replace because Germany has just lost all of its piped gas access from Russia. And is it going to get it back anytime soon? Not if things continue the way they are. That's why I opened with the idea that Russia is facing an entire NATO, including from Germany, which is busy sending leopard tanks and, you know, anti-tank missiles and other, you know, offensive and defensive, but lethal hardware into theater, which is killing Russians and making Russia's uh, time there a lot more lethal. So maybe we could say that it's going to be a while before any of this comes back. And that's if and only if the idea of it coming back, we don't have some sort of even worse conflagration breakout in Europe where more infrastructure gets damaged. Because guess what? That thing you're looking at right there, like that LNG plant, that's really what we call fragile technology. One of those HIMAR missiles landing into something like that, and that thing ain't working for a long time, depending on where it hits, right? Um, so, so this whole global, just-in-time economy based on energy and energy flows, 
it's not really well suited for a world where there's a kinetic war, but at least a pipeline could be fixed relatively quickly. These things, not so much. All right, so we have that going as well. And by the way, you know, a pipeline, it, it's just, it's, that's it. There's the whole magic of a pipeline. So pipe gas is the cheapest gas. The reason, why? Um, because, well, there's no energy loss converting a gas to a liquid and then back again. And it's vastly lower capital requirements. This may be a, they may cost billions for a pipeline, but they last for decades and they require zero maintenance relative, not zero, but close to zero compared to a natural gas LNG facility, which is a very maintenance intensive sort of thing. It's a very complicated beast. This is simple technology. It's just a tube, a metal tube. That's it. So Europe is now facing the situation where uh, they are going to absolutely be starved for energy. The energy they do get, if they're lucky enough and they can fill in that 57 billion cubic meter shortfall with LNG from somewhere, and it's not clear where that's coming from. So 2023 is going to be, thankfully, they've had a really warm winter. I mean, like one for the books, like really warm. That was great but they're not gonna be able to restock with um, LNG on open markets because a lot of it's contractually already spoken for and these are long, slow projects and it takes a long time to build new LNG infrastructure and you still have to have a supply for that. Meanwhile, you have Russia turning to the East, inking deals day after day with India, with China. Europe now has basically become a vassal state of the United States particularly around the energy side of this. And that's really the larger subtext of what Cy Hirsch had raised, which is like, hey, we know somebody bombed those pipelines, the Nord Streams 1 and 2. That's not up for debate. The question is, who did it? And if it wasn't Russia and it was NATO in some respect, if it was the United States, like Cy Hirsch says, or if it was the UK, who knows? But if it was NATO in any capacity, then this was a self-inflicted wound upon the people of Europe. And it's going to be felt immediately in gas prices, which that happened right away, but then more slowly, it's gonna be felt as the erosion of prosperity because once factories leave your town, your city, your continent, they really tend not to come back. It's one of those things like in the United States, if you drive through say an old coal town like Scranton, Pennsylvania, or some mountain town in West Virginia, which no longer has coal, you find out that when your primary source of, of avocation and income leaves a town, it takes generations to get that mojo back. So this deindustrialization that's happening in Europe, even if everything resolves and the pipeline gas magically starts flowing tonight, it's gonna be a long time before you get even back to the zero mark on this. And if it persists and creates the lasting damage where the factories up and leave, then pretty much effectively in our lifetimes, it doesn't come back. So that's the story there, which is why I'm gonna be talking extensively in part two, back at Peak Prosperity for my members about this concept, it is time to get resilient. This resilience is not just being financially resilient, but across all eight forms of capital that we talk about, including emotional resilience, social capital and social resilience, things like that. These are the things that we're really gonna to have to focus and get serious about as we go forward because there is no chance that this current crop of leaders is gonna do anything other than continue to stumble and bumble and make colossal mistakes that are gonna take a long time to fix. That's if we're lucky. And if we're unlucky, this whole mountain of debt we've got, the whole fragility of the financial system, suddenly starved of prosperity in, in a lubricated fossil fuel sort of generated way, if that suddenly gets a shock and pulls down, <clears throat> we could well see, I think, the chance of a major, major economic correction, financial correction, and or financial systemic error 
happening this year in 2023. So that's why it's time to become resilient. I would invite you to come to Peak Prosperity anytime you can and check that out. And by the way, <clears throat> um, we have big changes coming to our site and community and it's rate, you know, crash courses call that problem definition, but this over here, this is solution space. So that's what we're increasingly talking about is what do you do? What, what do you do? And what kind of actions could you take to become more resilient, stack the deck in your favor, become more financially free, uh, all of that. So that's what we're doing at Peak Prosperity. Thanks so much for listening. Can't wait to talk to you there if you come on by. And um, hey, have a great week. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.